Hi there, cool dudes and uh, funky chicks and ladies and uh, men and women of the world. Uh, that's how that this podcast might have started if we were doing it in 1950. We're doing it in 2023. It's called The Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is. My name's Kevin Hillier. I'm the announcer. Uh, and uh, the uh, star of the show, of course, is uh, the singer, songwriter, actor, provocateur. I, lo- I love that term, provocateur. Uh, Brian Mannix. Yowza, yowza, yowza. <laughs> oh, okay, little, we're going to have a little less chatter, a little bit more platter. We've got some uh, music for you. Chubba Checker coming up right now. Terrific. All right. And right now, so that's- here's, Misty, here's Misty for Evelyn. <laughs> that, that, uh, that is uh, how the podcast would have sounded if we were doing it on the set of Starsky and Hutch, but we're not. Um, no, that was play. That was play misty. For yeah, me. I know, and re- that's really funny oh. because I'll tell you uh, how spooky that is. I've I've been on the radio this last week, and oh, how about you? Were you what you been on two GBs? No, Bay FM in uh, in Geelong, uh, doing the ten to two show, playing some playing some music, and Mark Lane from Murcotts sent me a Facebook message, and, and you know what the Facebook message was? No, basically, I don't. basically good to see you back on the radio, Kev. Play misty for me. Uh, well, and I, I answer. I, I answered by saying thanks, Evelyn. There you go. Good to see you back on the radio, Mark. I think you should have thought about that one a little bit quicker, a little bit more. <laughs> I may have embellished. Yeah. I may have embellished great, that part of it. Great, great to hear you on the television. Um, <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what. I was dancing to some terrific architecture the other day. You were what? You know. Well, it's good to see you on the radio. It's a bit like dancing oh, to yes. architecture. Yes, sorry. So, you know, that's that's where I was. Mind you, the way radio me. is these days, they've got cameras everywhere in the studio. God knows that would have been a problem 30 years ago. <laughs> well, when you were doing radio and breakfast radio, would you, would you just lob up in your lime green tracky dacks yeah. and boots and – Shit, yeah. I never dr- – I. The one thing I loved about radio was that I could, you know, in the 70s wore jeans, in the 80s uh, I spent most of the 80s in tracksuit pants. Well, okay, but see... Some of them were mine. If, if, if you're doing... Well, there you go, how about you? <laughs> hubba, hubba, hubba. <laughs> um, so, but, like, suppose you're getting up at, what, 3.30, 4.30 yeah, morning yeah. to do breakfast? Yeah. yeah. Well... Do so you get up and have a shower? Or yep. you just go after stuff, and I'll do it on my way after I finished. No, no, no. I used to get up um, uh, generally around about that three thirty mark, quarter four. I'd jump in, have a shower. I'd uh, I'd have some toast and a little squeezy um, fruit juice thing. I'd eat the toast in the car on the way uh, driving in, and have my squeezy fruit juice. Get in there and have a cup of coffee and um, and go. People I've worked with over the years did. All sorts of different things. I, there was a bloke who used to work down in Geelong who used to put a suit on every morning because he figured he needed to dress to go to work. So that was his his deal. Okay. Um, I've had you, people people pe- that didn't did shower didn't shower. People that did shave didn't shave. Yeah. People that ate their breakfast during the program, which used to annoy the bejesus out of me. Eat your breakfast over there or out of the studio before the show or after the show, not during the show. But anyway. Well, well, talk me through it. So you're up at three thirty. You go and have a shower. You got your juice and your biscuits, and you're eating on the way in. 
Then you get in, yeah. what do you read the newspapers yep. or you know, you're on at six, I presume. Oh, 5.36 most times, yeah. So, yeah, so, you read so the paper. So you, you are there at what, 4.34 or something like that? Something like that. And what do you do till you go on? Oh, work out uh, anything that's due. You've got a, a basic little outline of the show and then you add the extra bits in and then you talk to the people that you're working with and say, what, have you got anything? And they say, oh, you all I went to, you know, the Farnham movie last night or I went to the circus last night or whatever. So, oh, yeah, we'll do a bit on that. So then you pot the show out and work out what you're going to do. Uh, read the papers, make sure you know what's going on in the world, talk to the people in the newsroom and then jump in and do it. Check check all the that all the music and all that's because I panelled. So I checked all the yeah. music and that all that stuff was there. In the old, old days at, uh, at Fox, I used to have to go in and then I'd load about seven different bloody racks of, uh, of sound effects and carts and everything that I was going to play during the show and have them... Uh, on a wall next to me, so as if I wanted to put a trumpet in somewhere, I could just grab a trumpet, and that was before computers and stuff. In terms, right? Of, yeah. So, yeah. So you, you've got a bit to do before you get on. So when you finish, okay. So you, it's nine o'clock. You finish now. What happens next? You, you got to go to a meeting. Or oh, usually yes. Or? The program director wanted to have a meeting with you and sit down and tell you how funny you weren't, um, how entertaining you weren't, or or were, and then uh, then you said about. Doing the stuff for the next day, work out what you're going to do for the next day. So you're in there at 4, 4.30. You're out of there by what time? Oh, you're trying. And midday is, is a late finish. Is it boozy lunchtime now and then because you know you're going to be in bed at 7.30, <laughs> 8 o'clock? No, see, I never did that. I used to um, I used to try and get out of there at midday, get home. If I if I felt I needed it, I'd have a sleep, but I, I wouldn't go to bed till 10.30 uh, the the, the night because you just you got to live as normal a life as you can because you're talking to the people who did stay up till 11 o'clock, get up at 7, want to know what's going on in the world. So if you haven't seen all the TV shows that were on or know what was going on or up to date with all that stuff, you just sound like a, uh, a dill. So you had to do all that. Anyway, Sorry, enough about me. Let's get, let's get back. I want to talk about who we got on the show. Welcome back to the life of Kevin. <laughs> God, 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 Hillier, that is. Yeah, no, uh, we got uh, world champion, bloke and boxer. Oh, he's a beauty. He's my mate. He is your mate. Celebrity apprentice you did with him. Is that Was that the first time you met him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah it was. But, um, look, he's, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's a rough diamond, is our Jeff. Yeah, and, um, Jeff Fenwick we're talking you know, about. You know, he's a great bloke. He's a straight shooter and he, you know, you don't have to guess what he's thinking. He'll tell you. But I think he's got a, a golden soul. I think he's a great guy. You'll uh, hear a lot of really interesting things in this chat that we have with Jeff. I mean, the, uh, when he almost died, the story behind the Azuma Nelson fight, the story behind when it happened in 91 and when it, when the result was reversed in 2022, 31 years later, uh, what that meant to him. We talked to him about all those things and uh, and the sort of apprentice things. And most importantly, Kev, yes. Super Camagra. Right. For those people who think that might be something out of a Marvel comic, it certainly isn't, and you'll find out what it is and what it does during the interview. I, I will put my hand up and say I'd never heard of it before in my life uh, and no. I had to get a, an explanation of what it did after we finished the interview by I, uh, young Mr Mannix. I think Super Camagra used to fight Spider-Man in certain <laughs> It sounds so, like anyway. that sort of thing, doesn't it? Uh, and our other guest is Alan Clark. So uh, we played a little bit of that interview in the last episode, so we'll, we'll finish um, that yeah. uh, terrific interview with Alan about his I'll Never Forget album and uh, and the Hollies and and uh, what he went through with his throat problems and all that sort of stuff. So that's all coming up. But And, and do you know what, Kev, though? What? 
Alan, during the week, he rang up a phone number and it was the number he dialed was one three hundred triple five five seven six. Why do you think Alan rang that number? Because he's a shitty driver? Well, right. He just felt like he needed a bit of a brush-up yes. on his driving skills, making sure that he was still safe, alert and ready to go and be fit for the road. So he rang our good mate at Murcotts and said, play Misty for me. No, he, said, <laughs> he didn't. He, uh, he And if you phone that number, don't be a smart-ass and say, play Misty for me. Because <laughs> that, that joke will wear off really quickly. Uh, so give him a call yes, and, uh, you know, Ed, uh, get your dri- stop it. Get your driving uh, up to specs. Get your driving 10 out of 10. Uh, they'll certainly help you do that. Uh, Murcotts Driving Excellence, murcotts.edu.au. You. But Brian, let's get ready to rumble. What about that phone number one more time, Ken? One three hundred triple five five seven six. Call me, got now. They're waiting for your call. Thought you wanted me to do it in that voice. I don't think I could do that. Anyway, now you can. Now you can rumble. Let's get ready to rumble. World boxing champion Jeff. Uh, oh, it's a bit of um, what's his name from the wrestling man? Um, <laughs> oh, a bit of Jack Little. Yes, <laughs> Jeff Fennick. Oh, listen to this interview. It'll be hanging from the rafters. <laughs> this Saturday night festival hall. Hey, what's happening, guys? Well, we're just really pleased that you could be on the show, Jeff, and so good to talk to you again. You know, I had a really good time meeting you on Celebrity Apprentice and, you know, you taught me how to punch. I still haven't mastered it, but, um, you know, it, it's it's like a shot put, throwing my arms around. No, it's a shot put. I'm going to put a whole weight behind it and all of that. But anyway, more importantly, how are you? Everything's great, mate. I just want to just uh... I had to go and do the press conference for Tim Zhu's fight in, in Amber Gold Coast. So I just rushed home. But I, I must have got 10 feet and find if I got caught, but no, I wouldn't have got it. was good. Hey, All Jeff, good. can I ask you, is he, is he the best fighter in the country at the moment, Tim Zhu? Um, yeah, you know, he's, yeah. Well, Joy of Pate is very good. The, the, the cruiserweight boy who won the tournament. Tim, obviously, he's got the name. He's, he's the main man at the moment. The brother's good too, isn't he? Yeah, Nikita's very strong, but he's uh, yeah, he's got a lot, he's got a, a long way to go. He's got um, because he had a few years off. He's got to um, polish those tools again, and he'll be fighting again. What uh, okay. what shapes Australian boxing in at the moment, Jeff? Oh, I think it's the strongest it's ever been. We've got some great little fighters, some great young guys. We've got a lot, a lot, a lot of talent. So, really, you think it, you think it's in in better shape than when in you and your heyday when you know you were running around and there was a, there was a fair few good boxers in your time. Yeah, no, I honestly do. I think that um, you know, at the moment there's there's so many, there's so many to pick from. There's so many good kids. So yeah, I think it's maybe it's, yeah. You can see. I think over the next um, year or so, we're going to have you know another five or six guys fight for world titles, and you know I think maybe two or three will more likely win them. You know. And what's your involvement these days with boxing, uh, Jeff? Oh, mate, I, I train a few boys and I do the commentary for Fox. So you know, just, that's what I was down there doing today, just down doing my um, my part as, as a media representative. But all good, you know, interviewed and done a few, you know, asked, obviously asked me some questions and stuff. So <laughs> about, you know, the, the situation of the fight game today and what's happening with that, all that kind of stuff. So, no, just, yeah, it's, it's good, you know. Jeff, has fighting changed? Has the, has the actual sport changed much since, you know, the, the, the your heyday in the, in the 90s? 
I think it's changed a little. I don't know. Um, I, I just think that um, obviously um, the media and the social media and um, money and all that kind of stuff. I mean, look, you know, um, when you when you get um, rich and famous quicker than you're supposed to, you, that, that hunger doesn't stay the same. You know, a lot of these guys aren't hungry like we used to be. I'm sure of that. You know, I watched the fight you know, over the weekend or a couple of weeks ago when Ryan Garcia fought. Um, Javante Davis, and I mean, yeah, between them, they throw like you know, 20 punches around. I used to throw, you know, 180, 200 on my own in one round, you know? You know, so between me and my opponent, we'd throw 300. So, you know, it's changed, but like I said, um, you know, I don't know, like I said, um, there's a couple of guys that are really skillful, but like I said, I still don't think um, um, it's the same as it used to be. But the, the great thing about Tim Zhu is um, Tim Zhu is, is also, old-fashioned, old-school, he throws lots of punches and he's washing up all the time. And that's why I think he's been so successful because um, he throws more punches than anybody else and they, they, they can't put up with his punch rate. So I think Tim's got a huge advantage because he's very, very fit and he's a busy fighter, very similar to his dad. He doesn't punch as hard as his dad, but he's a very busy fighter. He's, he's an in-your-face fighter, so he's got a huge advantage. Right. Jeff, speaking of punching and punching hard, I remember you telling me that Every time you had a fight, you broke your hands. And you said, I said, well, how did you go with that? And you said, well, let's put it this way. It hurt me a lot more than it hurt them. Is that, is, am I remembering that correctly? For an old man, you've got a good memory, mate. Oh, yeah, 100%. Now, there, there, were, there, were lots of times, <laughs> there were lots of times during my fights where, um, yeah, I'd, I'd hit them and, yeah, my hands would throb and I'd be in a lot of pain. I'd, yeah. And, of course, I think it hurt me more than it hurt them because because I didn't hit them hard. And even though I wasn't hitting them hard, just hitting them with, uh, with, when I had my hand fractured and I had my, yeah, those knuckles of mine giving me all those problems, yeah, it, it hurt me. It hurt me a lot, yeah. How yeah. is how is yeah. the body and the, the hands and the, you know, uh, everything these days, Jeff? Good? Uh, yeah, man. The hands are great. Um, obviously, I'm not sure if I'm used but like three years ago, I had a, a major heart um, scare just over three years ago. I had a major heart operation, which was a huge shock for somebody who had never been sick in their life, was always fit and them. But I think um, when you when people talk about hereditary and things that, you know, whatever, my dad died when he was 57. I was, you know, had I went to bed that night and, and the ambulance had arrived to my room, I would have been the same place as my dad. And, you know, buried because um, they said that I wouldn't have lived the, the night if, I fall, if I'd fallen asleep, I wouldn't have woke up. Jesus. Wow, that's, that's pretty powerful stuff because... You know, how fit would you have been when, you know, in your in your peak, you'd be one of the fittest blokes in the world, wouldn't you? Oh, definitely so. But not just that, like I said, even when, even when I was, um, when, when when the sickness just grew upon me, because it grew upon me over a few days, I just started to feel really down and out. But um, I, I, I still went to the gym every day and tried to, you know, not I didn't try to train because I, I, I was really knackered, but I was with my boys, I was training the boys and trying to be there for the boys. And that last night I said to, my, to the boys, I said, listen, boys, um, yeah, we we'll all go back and we'll go to dinner. And then just as dinner time came, I said to the boys, listen, boys, I'm not going to make it to dinner tonight. I'm not feeling really well. And then the boys said, let me take you to the hospital. Let me do this, let me do that. And I said, no, no, I'll be fine. Let me go back to the room. Just let me sleep this off and I'll wake up in the morning. They went and got a key to my room. They got the ambulance on their own accord and they brought them to the room. Had not that happened, then I wouldn't be here talking to you guys today. Jesus, that's uh, well, good on them. Yeah. Well, more than good of them, thank God. So that they don't, <laughs> yeah. You know me, Brian. Brian, I'm a stubborn guy, so there was, you know, there was no, there was no way I was going to go to hospital on my own, or there was no way that I told the boys I needed, 
you know, a, a doctor or, or, or anybody to check. I just thought I'll go to sleep. Hopefully I'll wake up, you know, um, feeling better than I did when I went to bed. But like I said, had I went to bed that night, there was no waking up. So I'm pretty blessed. Wow. I've got a couple of good things I want to talk to you about. One of the things we had to do on Celebrity Apprentices, we had to photograph somebody's story and we ended up doing yours. You were, you know, I think you were a teenager and you're mucking around with the wrong people and you're not really in a pretty good place and then you look through a little window. Is is that my am, am I remembering this right, Jeff? Yeah. Are you reading something or you you remember this book? <laughs> no, 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 no. You're a pretty smart well, old bastard. Well, <laughs> that's what dream, happened, bro. I was at the PCYC. I went there. We went there to look for some boys that we wanted to have a fight with. They weren't there as we walked and looked through all the rooms. We looked in the last room. It was a boxing room. It had a little a little window on the, on the door. I looked through the window on the door and they have seen a friend of mine from school who boxed. I thought, oh, shit, I'm, I'm up here now. I'm able to sit down and see what's happening in there and um, the trainer said something about boxing. I said, oh, yeah, I can box. Well, I didn't say I could box. I said I could fight. A little, uh, you know, thing that took a leaf out of Brian's book. I was a little cocky bastard. And, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, what, the next day I had a spar and this trainer told me that I'd done really, really well, although I got, excuse me to say, but I got the shit beat out of me. Um, but I was, you know, um, the trainer said, oh, mate, that was really good. If that's your first time you boxed. So I've never boxed before. I've never, you know, I've never watched boxing. This is my first actual, you know, training session. And um, he gave me some, um, he gave me some encouragement. But I also thought that he might have been lying to me. Boy, he just wanted me to go back up there so the, the, the boxers could pass me up again. They needed sparring partner. <laughs> but um, it all turned out for the better. Um, Johnny Lewis, from that day on, turned my life around, and I'm here today with the success I've had and everything that I've done is, you know, mainly because of that one man, Johnny Lewis. You know. Hey, Jeff, a lot of people well, would have forgotten that you went to the 84 Olympic Games. And Brian, wouldn't it? <laughs> Not 84, no. It was in Los Angeles. I'd come home there from a gig and I'd sit there and I'd watch LA and I said, I've got to go to LA. That's it. The LA Olympics is something that I'll never forget. And it was the first time I was I picked to represent Australia at the Olympics. I got um, chosen as Olympic team captain with, you know, 20-odd fights and then um, yeah, it was like it was like a dream come. Uh, it was like a dream come true. You know, me going overseas usually was on a boat from um, Circle Key to Manly, but um, this is <laughs> a pretty special one. You know, uh, must have been a must have been a, a magic moment for you. I mean, it wasn't the the fighting part of it. Unfortunately, didn't work out uh, quite the way everyone expected it. You you kind of set the platform for a, a major part of your career because you're kind of robbed over there, weren't you? Yeah, the funny thing was, I'm not sure if really anybody really expected me to to win until I got there. And I won my first fight. I won my second fight. And then I won my third fight. And the, the international jury overturned the decision for the first time in Olympic history that the judges award me the fight. And the jury says I lost. And, you know, I am, you know, I end up coming home medalless. And um, just winning that fight guaranteed me a bronze medal. And, um, you know, had I gone on and win the next fight, you know, I'm fighting for gold, which um, which was my dream. And um, it was taken away from me, you know, you know, you know unrealistic way, like I said, um, it was the first time in history that a jury was at the Olympics to, you know, um, oversee what the judges said. So it was uh, it was pretty saddening for me, but also it was um, not just an eye-opener, but it was um, it, it made me hungrier. It made me know that, you know, I've just competed with the best fighters in the world at the Olympics. I, I'm more than a hand of myself after just 24 amateur fights, which is pretty remarkable. The guys I fought had 300, 200, 100 fights. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it made me really keen. I did want to stay amateur again, but then um, they 
couldn't guarantee or, or, or promise me that Johnny Lewis would be my trainer because of obviously the politics and the amateur sport. So I turned pro, and I'll never forget, Brian, um, you might remember this if you see the interview, um, I got interviewed, they told me, um, you know, was I disappointed and so on and so on. Of course I'm disappointed, but I did say if they didn't let me win a gold medal for Australia, I'd win a world title, and I came home, I'd done that in my seventh fight, which was um, absolutely um, record-breaking and amazing. So, yeah, really proud of everything I've done for my um, not just for my sport, but for my country as well. Yeah, so you should be. Oh, you're a great Australian, Jeff, no doubt about that. And one of the things that, and Kev, you should have seen this, when we were doing Celebrity Apprentice, Jeff, people don't know what how much great work Jeff does for charity. And I was in the, in the, the car with Jeff and we were going from Star City to, the, I don't know, the fish market or Bondi. I think we are going to Bondi. We had to sell fish and chips that day, Jeff. And <laughs> on the phone, Jeff's just on the phone. I was just sitting there looking out the window, you know, and Jeff is on the phone and from the trip to Star City to Bondi, he raised $25,000 for the charity. Good God. And, and then in the first challenge, I think Jeff raised about 100000 I got six off sports bet. The rest of our team did fuck all. But, <laughs> and one of the other challenges, we're going down to the, the fish market early in the morning, me and Dawn Fraser and Jeff, and we're trying to, you know, get some money for some charity that we're working on. But it was like Rocky, you know, all of the people in the market said, hey, champ, hey, champ, hey, champ, come here, I've got something for you. <laughs> hey, champ, hey. Very, very funny. Um, your fame knows no bounds. What's yeah, I'll never forget that. Was the trip where I took some fish in the, in the boys' pockets and stuff like that. It was so funny. I, they didn't, uh, I'm not sure who we done it to. Well, we put some fish in, the, in, in their shoes and in their pockets of their clothes. And, yeah, it was, it was good fun. It was something that I'll, that I'll never regret that i done. And, you know, um, to this day, I'm great friends with Mark Buros. And uh, I think that is a major plus in my life. He's such a beautiful man. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. Yeah, and Johnny Stephenson's my one of my dear friends still to this day. And being able to talk to you, Brian, although I haven't seen you, it means a hell of a lot to me. Yeah, yeah the respect you show. And hopefully I, I, I gave you that respect on the show as well, mate. Wow. I, I haven't finished with you yet, Jeff. If unless oh. you've got to go, um, because as far as I know, you've just become a world champion. You know, you've come back to the Olympics in seven fights. You've become a world champion. What happens next after that? Uh, what happens? And to be honest, you know, I'll never forget this, Brian. That my trainer, I walked into the the youth club after becoming world champion, and then uh, Johnny, being the man that he was, um, I must have done. Well, I, I, I can't say I must have, but well, I did. I did a few things that weren't um, the protocol for Johnny Lewis and um, and the way that he expects his fighters or champions to act. And I'll never forget, yeah. I walked in the door and he said to his son, did you see that door you just walked into? Turn around and get the, excuse me, get the hell out of here, you know? And I, and I said, what? And when I walked out, because I walked out because I, I was embarrassed, I walked outside and started to cry. I think, wow, what have I done? And then I started to think and, yeah, it, it all hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks, but um, it was it was something I needed then, and um, yeah, maybe something I needed again later on in, in my career. But that was something that um, I'll never forget that Johnny had the the audacity and and, the, and everything else that goes with it to just tell this his first ever world champion. Listen, you know, you've changed your attitude. You've you know, you've, you've changed what we you know, what we represent here. So listen, get the hell out of here. So it was <laughs> a, it was, a, it was a, a real good wake up call for me. Well, like I said, um, as life goes on, Brian, fame, I, you know, yeah. I don't care who you are or what you've done, fame and fortune changes everybody. And um, you might say you're still the same. I'm 
stayed by. I'll never forget. Well, look, I don't forget where I come from, but I'm I'm definitely not that. You know, like you know, yeah, like I said, fame and fortune changes you. And yeah, as you said, I made phone calls to my great friend to this day, James Packard. They all helped me. So it was not, you know, I, I you know, kind of feel I was in this kind of privileged position that I that I become this world champion and met all these people. And then yeah, sometimes look, you can get carried away and and then, you know and 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 use those things the wrong way, but. I kind of honestly believe that I've been one person that will never forget that I'm here I am today talking to you guys for one reason. And not because of any anybody that I know that's rich, but because the Australian public. Without them, I wouldn't have my house. They're the people who pay to watch me fight. They're the people who pay to watch me fight on Sky Channel. So, um, yeah, I'll never forget. I'll never not sign an autograph. I'll never not do something for any any fan in any way, shape or form. You know, so I'm, I'm pretty proud of you know, my, my successes. And I know why that I got them. Obviously, I worked hard, but... Um, a lot, a lot of um, uh, loyalty and stuff has to go in with that and just remembering where you come from. And like I said, um, I'll never forget where I come from, but like I said, I'm, uh, no death. You know, and fame and fortune changed me. So with the fame and fortune comes invites to all sorts of places and meeting all sorts of people. <laughs> I mean, just a couple. The Kyle Sanderland's wedding recently. How did you, how did you score a, a gig at that and, and how do you know him? I was in Kyle's bridal party for his first um, wedding. Oh, right. Uh, that, that good mate of mine, John Abraham, took took my position in a second, but um, no, all good. No, um, like I said, I've known Kyle for a long time. I used to train him. I helped him when he was down losing some weight. And I've always, you know, I've been a very, very close friend of Kyle. But, so, um, you know, Kyle, for me, is um, a very, very special human who, um, if you're his friend, he's um, one of the most loyal people you'll ever meet. Loyalty's a big thing with you, isn't it? Yeah, loyalty's everything. My father taught me one thing. He said, if you go out with your friend's son, you go home with him. There's no circumstance that will make you not you know, whatever happens to your son or to, to your friends, what happened to you? So, um, you know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'm not worried about who I am or what I've done or what I what I own or what I have heard. If somebody hurts my friend in front of me or, or embarrasses them, they're, they're embarrassing me as well. So, um, I'm not letting that happen. So that's just yeah, something that I, I, I grew up with. I'll, I'll never forget it. Like I said, um, you know, I, you know, somebody came to visit me the other day, um, and they asked me about doing something for a charity, and I told them, you know, yes, yeah, so I sent them all this stuff. Because they couldn't, they couldn't get there and buy. So I've got the stuff. There's no problem. But I said, please don't. I don't want you to um to write that you you want to think. Oh, I'm going to put this big post. I said, I didn't give you the stuff for you to post that I, that I gave. I gave you because I want to give it to you. You know. And then this man came to my house the other day. Um, he's um he's in the horse um industry. His dad was one of the great trainers. And um, he came to my house with all these gifts and stuff to ask me to do. I said, I'm going to do the show. There's no problem. You don't have to bring gifts. And he said, my father told me one thing. When he told me this. It really resonated with me, but he said to me, he said, my, my father said, when you go to somebody's house and you ask them or you, you, you need help or support, you knock on the door with your knees. I said, what do you mean you knock on the doors with your knees? He said, because your hands are full because you're, you're, you've got, your hands are full with a, with a gift for this person that's going to help you. And it was just a really beautiful thing. And I really, yeah, like I said, um, yeah, it really, it really got, me, um, got me thinking. But like I said, um, I, I'm this kind of person that um, will never forget the people who helped me, and I'll never forget um, you know, the, the people who, who hurt me. So um, um, that's just me. I mean, I think um, Brian would have seen me, you know, when we yep. uh, had the little bit of uh, the arguments and stuff with the Warwick, uh, the Warwick Cappers and stuff while we were in um, in um, uh, Celebrity Apprentice. I'm just, I'm just me. I'm just, I'm not scared of nobody. I just do what I need to do, and I look after myself. I try to be myself as much as I can be. That's that's one of your assets, Jeff. Is that you know where you stand with Jeff Fennick. You know, if if you. A good person, he'll treat you well. He's got a, the man's got a golden soul, and you know 
he's not the sort of person you want to do the wrong thing by because, you know, he's a world championship boxer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, if I kick up the arse or, 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 or a bag, man, give it to me, you know, but if I don't, I'm going to I'm gonna stand up for myself. And I mean, if you, you know, like I said, then again, then again, even if I do, if you've got the balls to give it to me, I'm giving it back to you. <laughs> but, look, I saw your loyalty, like you and Dawn Fraser, I was going to call her Joan because she looks like my next-door neighbour, but you and Dawn are, are very, Dawn Fraser are very close and very protective of each other. But one of the things that, just going back to Celebrity Apprentice, now see if you can remember this. We had to think of a name for the boys' team. We ended up on being Team Fabulous because the guy, the comedian from the ABC said that. But you, you had some mate that had come back from Thailand or something and had bought a whole bunch of Super Camagra. And you said, oh, you've barely you've got to have this Super Camagra. And we're going, oh, yes. Yeah. So we wanted to call the team the Super Camagras and they wouldn't allow that. So we ended up being <laughs> Team Fabulous. Anyway, Jeff was kind enough to give us this DVD, um, a documentary about himself and a couple of other things, but also in there was a satchel of Super Camagra. So anyway, I've been up in Sydney for a couple of weeks. The missus comes up. You were, more, think, than, oh, you were more than up in Sydney. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. All right, the missus comes up. I try, I try out the Super Camagra. Oh, my God, you're kidding. I just went for hours and hours and she said, just <laughs> get off me. You should have just said I've been training with Jeff Darwin. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, the Super Camagra, that's one of the – the um, my strong and also that great night where you took us out to uh, dinner at the Belmain. I think it was the Yacht Club, was it? Yeah, Echoes. And, Echoes um, yeah, that was fantastic. Um, are we going to talk about Azuma Nelson? Yeah, I wanted to ask about what? that. Can we can we ask about yeah. that? The the, the November you, you November seven whatever you want. November seven, twenty twenty two, when they re. Uh, the decision came through after they looked at the fight again and rightly awarded you the fight. Can you tell us how that felt for you? Um, I'll tell you how it felt. To be honest, guys, look, um, it was great that um, a travesty was was um, corrected. It was great that they were able to fix something that was wrong, which is amazing. I, I think that that's an important part of life when that happens. But for me, when I, when, I, when I weigh it all up, wow, how great was it that I got it 31 years later or not 31 years early because, guys, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I wouldn't be married. I would have been in America and, you know, make all the had you know, obviously a lot more money and a lot more, at that time, fame and fortune. And trust me, I, I definitely wouldn't have been, I don't look, like I said, I, I know what was happening when I was three-time world champion and talking about fame and fortune changing. Had I been four-time world champion, got the money that had been promised to me after those fights, um, I'm so, so happy it didn't happen. I'm so happy that I got it 31 years later. And look, and, and to me, it really means, I don't want to say this, but um, yeah, the bills mean nothing to me. My my career is um, the way it is because of, of my peers, the, the peers and the respect I get from my peers. That's how you know when you've made it in, in, in anything, I believe, you know. If your peers celebrate you and talk about you, then you know you've made it. So the bills really mean nothing to me. But look, I, I can honestly say that um, the greatest thing that happened in my life was I didn't get that decision back then because I've got the most amazing wife and family now. I'm a complete... Different person, I believe I would have been had I won that um, that belt on that day. And you know, as exciting as it would have been, and um, the prestige that came with it, and the money that would have came with it, uh, would have been amazing at that time. But um, 
in the long run, when I tunnel vision to 31 years later, well, it's the, the best thing that ever happened in my life was, was you know, that draw and then, you know, and then, and then losing because um, I learned more about who I was and who I'm supposed to represent when I lost and I ever did um, when I won. You don't, you know, you, you just celebrate when you win. When you, when you lose, you, you go into deep thought and you've got to think, wow, what am I going to do next? How am I going to do this? And then you, you, you learn to rebuild. And then when you win, you don't learn yeah. to rebuild. You just you know, carry on with the fame and fortune, parties and so on. And you know, to me, everything happens for a reason. And, um, you know, I'm delighted to have my fourth daughter make my, you know, or my, my trophy room look amazing. But um, to be honest, um, I got it at the right time. Had I got it, you know, back then, um, yeah, like I said, I definitely wouldn't be here talking to you guys today or, I wouldn't. Have, I don't believe it would have been half the personal end today because I I learned more from that loss and um, the draw than I ever did do anything else. So I'm really, really delighted that to get it and to to let people know that sometimes um, um a right a wrong will be reversed to a right. And that, that's what happened this time. I'm, I thank the WBC for that and and the boxing world who voted and watched the fight. But um, yeah, yeah, everything like I said, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, fabulous attitude, Dave. And- you are a person. I know when we were doing Apprentice together, you know, there was many times that you, you know, indicated that you were always working to become a better human being. You know, you, you acknowledged that you'd made some mistakes along the way, but, you know, you're always striving to be better. And, you know, and I think that's... That's a wonderful quality to have because most yeah, people find find excuses for their mistakes, but you just go, "No, I've made some blues, and yeah. I'm going to be a better person." And Brian, I like to put my hand up and tell people I made this mistake, so you know, maybe you know, you know, people won't make the same mistakes I made. Like I said, you know, like I was, you know, like I said, you know, pretty blessed and gifted to to, to do all the things I've done. But when when you make mistakes, you think, ah, and this is how I was born. As you see me, I'm this big tough guy that can handle this. But what I didn't realise at the time was I had a mum, mother, and father, and brothers and sisters, and you know, and, and then you have a wife and kids, and then people uh, are saying things about their about their about their, their, their you know, your husband or your dad and stuff, and it hurts them tremendously. So um, I didn't realise the the hurt that I, I caused uh, on other people. And um, if I could, you know, you can't change anything. So I I, I, I can't. But like I said, um, me hurting my family and um, you know. You know I really, I really, you know, dislike yeah. uh, myself. Um, but like I said, you, you can't change it. All you can try to do is be a better person. That's what I'm trying to do. You know, my whole career and my whole life is just trying to get better and better. Well, it's always like, you know, um, training to be a boxer. You know, you're training to be better all, all the time, but you've taken that into life. And, you know, you continue to try to be a better and better person and, you know, you've already got a golden soul, you know. You're a terrific guy and, you know, your patience with people and, um, you know, just the inspiration I think you've given people, Jeff, has been absolutely amazing. You know, I know that hanging out with you on Apprentice was just, you know, wow, how cool is this? I mean, now Jeff Fenix teaching me how to punch. <laughs> and uh, Which brings and, me to you know, my next question, Jeff, which is tell us the Mike Tyson that you know as opposed to the one that we see. Is there is there, is there a good call? Is there a couple of different well, think, people running yeah, around well, there? Yeah, well, I think the one we're seeing at the moment is the, the, the one that I really knew. Um, like I said, I've travelled with Mike Tyson. Um, I tell a few stories, but the most – Loyalist friend you can have, um, you know, and he would give you know all his money away, which he's done 
on numerous occasions. I was flying with him to London one day, and um, we both um, get on the plane. I'm sitting down, and I'd fallen asleep before the plane had taken off. I woke up as we were in the in the air, and I've got a you know a 70 year old lady sitting beside me. So I said, "Am I dreaming?" Anyways. <laughs> and I slowly got out of my seat and walked to the back of the plane because we up in the air. And then there's Mike in, in, in like the last row of the plane. He gave the lady his seat. And like, yeah, he's done so many different things that while I've been around him. But like I said, then I think that the Mike Tyson we see now on his podcast and, um, you know, helping people is is the real Mike Tyson. The the, the Mike Tyson that we've seen, you know, um, on, on, on occasions be this lunatic was him trying to be, you know, the, the baddest man on the planet. That's what everybody said he was. And he tried to, he tried to be that person because that's, you know, um, that's what he, he thought he had to be to make money and to, to be this successful fighter. And, um, you know, that, yeah, for me, um, he's always been a, a beautiful soul and a beautiful person. And, um, you know, I, I'll never say a bad word about him. Who's the best fighter you've ever seen? Jeff? Roberto Duran or Ray Leonard, uh, one of those guys. I mean, I've, obviously I've watched uh, Joe Lewis on, on um, video, who's an amazing fighter. I've watched uh, Mike Tyson, who's a, who's a freak, and I've also um, I love Sugar Ray Robinson. But yeah, um, Roberto Duran, um, Ray, Ray Leonard, they're, they're two of my favourites of all time. And you know, yeah, Julio Chavez, those guys are, are all really, really true true fighters. You know, they fight you know from round one to round fifteen, which we used to fight. And um, yeah, it was. It's just crazy to watch those guys. Yeah. Jeff? Oh, I don't know. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Ultimate fighting, the octagon. What do you think of that? Um, to be honest, Brian, look, uh, everybody loves combat sports. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're my age. When you went to school, if you kick somebody, you're a girl. You know? I hope these guys aren't taking yeah. offense. I'm just, you know, hey, you kick it. Listen, and there's no problem. They, they're kicking each other. That's right. But my, my biggest fear is, when these guys get knocked out, they're able to punch them again just as they're on the floor. And to me, it's really, really dangerous. And I don't yeah. like that that last elbow or that last kick or that last punch as these guys have already been knocked out before the referee jumps in and stops them. You know, in boxing, as soon as you go down, you're not allowed next to anybody else. But these guys, once they hit the floor, you're allowed to hit them again and, and multiple times if you're quick enough. And you know, some of these guys are. And um, yeah, that's a bit for me. Um, yeah, yeah, for me. The ultimate fight is when two people use their fists. You know, hand, you know, hand combat is what I grew up, you know, um, believing. Yeah. But like I said, the world's changed, you know? Yeah. For me, once, the world's they, changed. once somebody gets on the ground, you've got to stop and then get him back up on his feet. You know, I can, I can deal with the kicking, but I can't deal with the rolling around on the ground. It all gets a bit too, I don't know. And I especially can't handle watching the girls belt the crap out of each other, which is probably sex. But um, you know, I, I don't mind the boxing because there's an art form to boxing. There's a skill to boxing. You know, I, I've fought Evander Holyfield on the PlayStation, Jeff, <laughs> and I've beaten him just by blocking for 11 rounds so he can't hit me. And then I sneak in. I probably punched him three times in the entire match. Brian, going back to what you said yeah. about women and fighting, I'm looking. I was of a, a, a similar um, yeah, vision to you early on. I didn't. I, I didn't like to see women fight. I thought. Look, as, a, as a, a young man growing up, my dad, you look after your wife, you look after the family, all that kind of stuff, you know. But now, listen, yep. they're, they're, you know, these girls, I mean, as much as I don't like seeing them hit each other, they're so they're competitive good. and they want to do it. So, I mean, in this day and age, let them, let, let them go. As long as, look at it again, Brian, the most important thing is hopefully they're going to have a trainer similar to Jeff Penny that will look after them when they're getting hurt. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So we can we can announce Jeff Phoenix Girls School of Boxing opening up <laughs> next week. Well, if, if I'm going to do that, you're going to be the head trainer. <laughs> ah. well, like I said, um, like the world's changed today, and um, I just wish everybody that does any sport uh, has somebody who cares about them, somebody who can look after them, and um, yeah, um, yeah. For me, health health's more important than wealth. Yeah. Hey, mate, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been sensational. I love you guys. Thank you so much. And um, I'd love to get together with you again soon, my brother. All right, mate. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much. Yep. Um, um, Love you all. (laughs) Love you all, brother. (laughs) You're a champion. Thank you, mate. How good to have Jeff Fennick on the Life of Brian podcast. Sensational. All thanks, of course, to our good friends at Mercot's Driving Excellence, 1300 555 576, mercots.edu.au. We played you a little bit of the Alan Clark interview I did in the last episode. Well, now we're going to delve more into a chat I had with Alan about uh, the new album he's got out called I'll Never Forget, about the halcyon days of the Hollies, about working with Graham Nash again, about when Graham Nash left the Hollies, and a whole lot more, including a song that he wished he'd written. So that's all coming up enjoy alan clark from the hollies so was making this album a big jump for you was it it was a, a, a big thing for you to actually decide yeah I'll, i know you did resurgence before this one but was this one yeah. again another another big jump for you to make well it's one of those things that, that creeps into your life without you actually knowing it's happened uh like graham and i have been uh talking about doing something together uh I won't say since he since he last since he left the group because it was a long time ago. But you know, we have met on different occasions. We we have the same friends in England together. And when he came over, we all we all met, you know, and, and had a big chat about what it was like in the old days and, and things like that. And and in my mind, I was when when I saw Graham, I thought we should do something, and but 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 left it, you know. But anyway, when resurgence was out. I played it to him. I went to his hotel and played it to him. And, uh, and he said, wow. And he said, that's, that's really good. You know, where did that come from? And I said, well, I don't know. It just happened. And he says, well, that sounds really, really good. He said, maybe we should do something in the future. But he was always a maybe, you know, and uh, a maybe we'll do something. It, well, it was, it was two years later that I met him. I said, well, are we going to do this sort of thing? And he said, well, send me a few songs. And uh, I, I had written one with this in mind with Graham. Um, it's, it, it's the one that I'll never forget. And I wrote it about the how we were both saying in, in our mind, you know, is this a good thing to actually to do again after such a long, long time? Would people accept us in, in the way that we are a lot older? Uh, uh, would we sound the same? Would the song stand up to you know what what Graham would like to do? So that's the song that I that I, I wrote for Graham. Yep. And uh, I, I sent it to him, and he says, "Okay, let's do it." And and that's where it started. Well, in the way you know, and we could never get together, you know, because it was all this COVID thing going on, and you know, you couldn't actually book a tri- uh, book, you couldn't actually book a flight to go over to New York because you could get to the airport and all of a sudden the attendants got COVID or someone else has got COVID. So, you know, we had to do it from our individual little studios that we both have. And, 
and I had done the the uh, the song um, I'll never forget, and I'd actually had it uh, I'd, I'd had it done properly with uh, Francis Haynes, who is my producer now. Francis Haynes used to be with the Hollies in in the eighties. He's and the piano I, I player, right? Brilliant. Yeah, it really is brilliant. And uh, and I did that. I said, "Well, you're going to put ultra ultra into this, so that Graham can, you know, get into it." So I said, "Okay, I know where you're both at." So that's what we started doing. I started writing songs, and uh, when I finished one song, I'd send it to Graham. Graham would say whether he liked it or not, because we were in the understanding that if he didn't like anything, he wasn't going to do it, which I completely understand. You know, he's got his own reputation yeah. to, to look after as well as, well as, as mine, you know. But uh, as each song came, I sent it to him. He liked it and he put his harmonies on. You know, he went to his little studio uh, in, in New York and, uh, and and he was also actually recording his own album at the same time. So you can imagine actually trying to fit things in. You know, wh- where are you today? Oh, well, I'm going to Woodstock, you know, for a while, but I won't be back but, there's all things like that that actually slowed it down. But that was okay as far as I was concerned because I was quite happy just writing the songs in, in the time that I wasn't, you know, working with Graham. And, and it went on like that uh, until we got 11 tracks. And halfway through, I, I said to Graham, well, you know, maybe you should write a song. Let's, let, you know, write a song on the album, for Christ's sake. You know, and he said, well, okay. But he said, I don't really want to do that because if this is your album. I can hear that this is going to be your album. And, and I, will, I will put all my harmonies on whatever track you want me to put it on. He says, and I think that, um, he said, I will, I'll, I'll write a song. And he came back about three weeks later and then I played it and it was this song called Buddy's Back. And, and I listened to it and I thought, oh, well. I know what he's done here. He's gone back in. He's probably got a time machine somewhere. <laughs> you know, got the actual sound that Buddy Holly would have had if he'd have written that song. But it wasn't Buddy's story. What it was, it was our story, uh, saying it was Buddy Holly that actually put us. Uh, they started working for us in a way that we wanted to be like the people we heard on the radio. And that beautiful Stratocaster, you know, that he had that guitar yeah. and his him was so big and powerful in all the songs, you know, and uh, we wanted to be him, we wanted to be the Abbey Brothers and, 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 and that's the whole thing on the, story, on the story of that one song. And then I took it to the CEO of BMG and he said, Alan, he said, I will put this out. He said, because I think that you two just taking too long to get together and it should have happened before now. But he says, no, great, we'll put it out and we'll make Buddy's Back with the first single. It's a personal lyric, obviously, but it's a very universal yeah. lyric because I stood in front of the mirror and pretended I was a, a rock star from 10 years after it, you guys were doing it. Yeah, well, everybody did. But, you know, before that, there was Lonnie Donegan, the guy that set everybody up wanting to play skiffle, you know. And we, you know, Graham and we were called the two teams when it all started for me and Graham. And we were about 13, coming on 14. And then Lonnie Donegan was a big, he impressed me and Graham no end, you know. And more or less, I won't say he started our career, but he started us singing together properly. You know, who's my brother, Frank? Um, he, he had a sweet shop in, in Salford 7 where I used to live. And Graham used to go there, and I used to go there about every weekend to practice.
practice in his front room. And as we were practicing, Frank came in. He said, that sounds really good, you know. So just what you should do is you go up to the, there was a, a, a sporting club where, you know, guys go to have a pint and, I, and they, they have like a variety show on for all these people. And you get about a thousand people and every, you know, a night at these places. So I said, well, you can look at Graham and Graham said, are you sure? And they said, give it a go. You know, let's go on. So we went up to this club, we walked in, we, we met the owner, who was an ex, I think he was either an ex-restaurant or a boxer. And, uh, and he, he said, what, what do you want? And my brother said, well, I've got the two guys here, they sound really good, can you give them a spot? So the guy said, well, okay, uh, well, <laughs> it's more or less like this, we'll wait until the strippers have been on, and then you, <laughs> you can go on and you can do your, you know. It was that kind of that kind of club. They they had jugglers and all sorts of things on. You know, it was it was variety. So we waited for our turn and we went on stage. And as we walked on, I mean, the whole thing went quiet because I, I, I think we were still wearing short trousers. We were only fourteen, and we got introduced to the two teams. We didn't know what to do. We couldn't announce ourselves. I say, "Oh, I like the ladies and gentlemen. We'd like to do a little song for you." It's nothing like that. It was like, "Are you ready, Graham?" You know, "Yeah, all right." And we'll do, uh, we'll do Cumberland Gap. No, no, we won't. We'll do Rock Island Line. Okay. And we went through the three numbers, and and after the the third number, the whole place went wild. You know, we thought we looked on in amazement. You know, thought, "Well, what's just happened?" And um, we came off and the, the owner said, well, that was really great, boys. Here's 10 bob. And it was the 10 bob note. In those days, you know, it wow. was 10 shillings. That was five, 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 five bob each. And then I looked at Frank. Frank looked at me and he said, well, there you go. And the owner says, I've got, I've got other clubs that I would like you to do. So, you know, uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch with you and, and make a start from there. That's when Graham and I really started on our way to sort of playing to people uh, in clubs and pubs and wherever you could get a gig. I mean, of course, because it was a club of that size, I mean, our payment went down from 10 bob to about two and six, you know. (laughs) But it was okay. It, It didn't really matter then because we enjoyed, you know, what we were doing. We both had jobs. You know, I mean, I left school when I was 14 and a half and, uh, and Graham actually had passed his 11 plus. So there was that little bit between where we didn't really have that much contact in the years that he was in primary school uh, and because we were separated by that. But we got together at the weekends and then we were, you know, we went to places and played and got money, which enabled us to buy better guitars when ready for when rock and roll came in. That was it. I mean, it, it was a part of our lives from then on. Music as as it was happening. Was that just a natural pairing? Your voices just just worked together so well because you listen to the Holly songs and you listen to the the stuff on this new album of yours. And and there's a, I have to say, there's a freshness about the harmonies when you listen to the new album. But it's also a comfort as well. There's a comfort in there with that sound. When Graham and I got back together again to do the album, I said, "Well, look, my voice." Um, because I'd done uh, uh, the, the, the resurgence, my, my voice was getting a little bit stronger, you know. And, and Francis was saying to me, you can, get, you can go higher than that, you know. And I'd point where I could sing a certain uh, note that it, that was okay, 
I, could, I couldn't go any further. You know, I mean, it, then it used to just crack up. So I got to a, a pitch where I, I knew that Graham, my voice on top of that, Graham wouldn't have to sing in higher harmonies. So that's the difference with me being more mellow. Graham is more mellow, but the actual sound that we make together is quite unique. Yeah. And it, it was always like that from the day we were born, really. You know, I mean, when we were six and we sang at the school assembly once, we, we were asked to do it, stood us on chairs, and I think it was the, the Lord is my shepherd. And Graham sang harmony. You know, we don't, we don't know did. why. <laughs> we didn't know why. And it, and it was a long time after that, you know, that um, we didn't sing. We used to go and see a lot of movies. My mum used to take me to uh, when there was a great movie on, like uh, Seven Brides and Seven Brothers and uh, West Side Story, which came on later on in the 50s and that. Uh, and you get your gun, Calamity Jane, in no business like show business. I used to love them. Musicals were, it's sitting a picture and it'd be just magic. There's the colour and there's the songs and there's the dancers and Freddie Stair, Gene Kelly, you know, all, all that thing. And it really impressed me that I like that kind of music. And, uh, and, and, and in my mind, I mean, I mean the, the songs from the past, when I say to the kids, have you ever heard of uh, Tennessee Lee Ford? And he sang a song called 16 Tons. Oh, yeah. You see, that was one of my favourite songs, because I could sing it. A load 16 tons, and what did you get? I mean, his voice, it was, you know, I loved his voice for that. And, and Rosemary Clooney singing, you know, there's a, a train that goes through the middle of the house. They were all pop songs of that time, when Graham were, were not, you know. We were doing skiffle and into rock and roll, and then rock and roll came in. You know, when it, when it hit 55, I mean, Lonnie was, was on his way out, you know, uh, song-wise. It, it strikes me that the skiffle and, and country, there's a, there's, a, there's a marriage somewhere in there that, that I don't yeah, think yeah. people have connected with. And, and I, get, I get a little bit of that in this new album too. Yeah, well, um, I would like to think that I'm going in the right direction by singing songs that I, you know, that I feel like, mm. that I have written. And and the one with it, you know, you didn't like it. I don't know whether you've heard that song. You yes. didn't like it. Yep. That that was a fun song for me to write, you know, because it was a, it was actually making a point that nobody knew what you were talking about, so that everybody had to think what they thought it was that you didn't like, <laughs> you know. So you just a way of playing with depends how your mind worked, you know. I was listening also, to that I mean, song, and you know who I'd love to hear do a version of that song? I think Ringo Starr would do an exceptional version of that song. Oh, I, I hope he does. I hope <laughs> he does. Yeah, 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 I agree with you. The, the, the thing that happened to your voice was, uh, I mean, it's obviously it's, it's different these days to, to the Hollies days. Yeah. Um, give us a little insight into, into what actually happened and why you, you walked away from music for such a long time. Well, when you, when you think of the uh, the Hollies, uh, the length of time uh, that I actually had to sing all the hit songs on stage yep. for forty years, you know, and and I think there was a time when the, the 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 guys wanted to do the whole show themselves. So instead of doing like just in the second half, because we were always top of the bill. It was like doing the whole show with for two and a half hours. And, and what happened was it, it got to a point where my voice was saying to me, 
you're croaking now, Alan. You know, you're not hitting those high notes. And uh, and people notice. But because of who I am within the band, a lot of people can forgive that, you know. Yep. But I can't. I can't forgive it. And, uh, and, and I think the boys quite understood the way that I was feeling. Um, and, and even the, the two of the guys, uh, Bob and Tony, you know, said, well, you know, we are noticing that, you know, it's not working for you now these days. So another thing happened again at that particular time in 1999. Uh, Jenny, my wife, got cancer for the second time. And that's not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, that was the main reason that I said, okay, I've had enough. I have to be at home with my family to see what develops out of the situation that I'm in. Yep. And, um, well, I, I actually, I was thinking of actually going to Australia and <laughs> getting a nice little bit on a beach somewhere, you know, because I, I really, I really like Australia. I think it's great. It's a pity that I can't go over there. I looked at all the time that we did the shows over there. It's fantastic. Loved it. But, um, but I went to America where a friend of mine, this place called Hilton Head Island um, in, in South Carolina. So I was taking my wife away from the situation in England and we, I bought a little ranch house overlooking a lagoon, you know, and there was a golf, I don't play golf, but there was a golf course there. Yeah, it was a beautiful place, you know. I mean, it, the people there we made friends with right away, I mean, nobody knew who I was, you know, and it was good that they didn't. And we, we were going there six months of the year, every year. Uh, obviously, we'd come back for the kids and et cetera. Uh, and after the fifth year, you know, I looked at Jenny. I said, well, don't look like you're going anywhere, darling. So should we go back home? You know. <laughs> so we did. And at, at that particular time, we had two, two other grandchildren born as we came back. And we were needed. So it was like fate was saying something to us. Okay, you've had five years. Go back. You, you wanted at home. Now, in that period of time when you when you finished with the Hollies at the end of nineteen ninety nine, did you were you writing still or were, were you dabbling or did you just completely walk away? Completely walked away. Wow. I walked away. I really didn't want anything to do with it or be a part of it because um, it's very demanding. Yeah. You know, if, if people think that you 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 have a great time on stage, then you know you go on the bus and you go on to the next place and you can't wait to get on stage. Never like that for me. I mean, I was I was terrified going on stage every single night. Wow. I had to lie down in a dark room, you know, for the, for the for half an hour till I was called to go on stage to try and compose myself. And you know, it was only about getting to the third, the third song that I started feeling comfortable because I knew I'd been accepted. Hmm. It's it's one of those things that I think they call it. Imposter syndrome. Yeah. It means that you're going to get caught out one day where they're going to say, no, you're not as good as you say. You don't know why you're doing it. I've, I've suffered from that all my life. Did you like being in the studio? Was that was that a play, Was that a happy place for you? This is my studio. Oh, do you mean the studio with the hollies? Yeah. You know, did, you, is... did you enjoy being the recording process? Was that a happy area for you? It was right from the beginning, you know, because it was exciting. It's exciting, and when you're making music, which uh, which is successful, you know, you're going in, you're writing, you're singing a song, they're selling it, and it goes in the charts. Um, but you know, as you go on in life, for the for the, the time that I've been in it, it gets to a point where it becomes like 
oh, it's okay. What are we going to do next day? What we, where are we going tomorrow? And things like that. It becomes something that is quite normal. The excitement goes off a little bit. But when you get on stage, the excitement comes when they all start clapping and, and things like that. That's the reward is when you're on stage. It's when you're off stage and all, and all the things that you have to do with that is, is quite boring, you know, when traveling. Yeah. I, I was living two lives, really. You know, when I went on stage, I was just somebody else. I was Alan Clark. When I came off stage, it was, I, 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 well, I'm, I don't really want to go anywhere today. I might go to the movies or I might go out and have a pizza myself. I was, very, I was a very sort of singular man on my own. Is there a lot of songs still in you? Because the, 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 the new album is is very reflective. I'll never forget it. It's, it's full of reflective lyrics about about your life yeah. and about your feelings and about your thoughts. Was that, that a good experience for you to do? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's things that um, I've had within me for a long, long time. You know, I mean, there are certain books that I read. Uh, there are certain beliefs that I have, you know, that you go through life um, having uh, – Things happen to you, you know, whether they're good or whether they're bad. I think, I think this is what you, when you have a life, this is how you learn how to be a proper human being in a way. Uh, and, and I think I've got now to a position where I can put the words that I want to put in in a way that, you know, it, it's, it doesn't mean that other people, I think that if, if other people identify themselves with, with my lyrics that I'm writing, I hope it's in a good way. You know, I hope it's in a good way. And when I do write a song, I do want people to identify with what I'm trying to say because the things that have happened to me, I know has happened to other people because, you know, there is sorrow, there is happiness, you know, you cry, you sleep, you know, and all that sort of thing. Everybody does those things. It's, what, what's, it's what's in between whatever emotions you're having at any particular time. So... But Most there, of those but, songs, but on. there is a skill in turning that into a song lyric and, and actually touching some with it, which is what you've done with these lyrics on on this album. Yeah, hopefully, um, but they're not they're not things that I've, I've written that would harm anybody in no. any way. No, you know, I mean, I've written there's one song on there which is "You Need Someone to Help You," which was my uh, my song about what's happening to the world, and um, I don't think that one particular person. Uh, can put everything right. Who am I? The, the the track that kind of finishes the album off. That's, yeah, that, that's that's obviously a very personal thing for you. That one. Yeah. Well, life's a search. Is you know you search for the answer in your life, don't you? And and sometimes you don't get it. And uh, I I I've been follow- I won't say I've been following uh, any any kind of religion in any way whatsoever, other than I believe in God of my own understanding. That means that I'm not going to put my beliefs onto anybody else because they have to believe in what they want to believe in. Yeah. I think it's very important that you you do search for an answer, and and I've had many an answer uh, in many of the books that I've read, and I've read a lot of books. It doesn't mean that one individual book is giving me the whole story. I like the journey that I'm on, you know, because you know it, it, I've got a great family, you know, yeah. but you know I. Want you want that to carry on and maybe for maybe a couple of more times. Absolutely. Yeah, do you look back on the on the early days of the Hollies with with fondness or uh, what what are you what are your crystal clear memories of those early days? I met five people. 
you know, and with those five people, you eat, you meet other people that some that are in charge, like managers and things like that, and roadies and things like that. So I became a part of a family of people around me uh, that were probably with me most of my life when I was going out on doing, you know, what, what I did for a living. In the beginning, it was absolutely fantastic. 60s were crazy. You know, uh, it really was. It was just chaos, wild. I mean, and I loved all the fashion stuff. Uh, but you see, I don't forget about where I came from. My early days was a different kind of life to what I was given when all of a sudden somebody, four guys came along called the Beatles, and you know, you know what happened after that. You know, without them, we would never, we would never have done it. And I think everybody will agree with me on that. So you know, to me, it was just I was being carried away. I was riding the wave. Yes, enjoying it. Uh, some of it got out of hand. <laughs> but do you tell me somebody that was in the 60s where he didn't in a rock, in a rock band? Uh, but, you know, it was, it was a different kind of life to what I had before. I mean, I've not forgotten that I, I worked in a mill. You know, I, was, I, went to, I went to my first job was when I was 14. You know, I got £1.19 and 11 a week for a five-and-a-half-day week. It was, it was just, it was, but my life was as it was, and I... And I, well, that was my life. And, and how it progressed from there, for me, is a book in itself. Yeah. The way that my father looked after seven kids in a house that we lived in, which was a two up and two down, with one cold tap and a gas light, you know, and a toilet out in the yard. You know, uh, and to me, that was normal. It was normal. You know, that's, everybody lived like that. Uh, and I'm, my dad must have, well, he worked his ass off for us, you know, in yeah. those days. You know, when he, I didn't see my dad till I was three years old. I mean, two years after that, I met Graham. So, you know how things change. It was just after the war. And a lot of things, rationing, you know, going to the sweet shop once a week with your little coupon and a penny to buy a cake. It was a different world. Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful that I, I am who I am. But I've never forgotten where I come from. That friendship with uh, with those core members of that that early part of the Hollies, and the friendship with Graham, obviously, which which we we hear on this on this new it, album, was that strained in in the, the end of the sixties there when he left and went went to America? Well, yeah, I mean, I was devastated. I mean, you can imagine I've been with a guy virtually all my life and, and made all those records and sang with him, and uh, all of a sudden, um, sorry, I'm going, I'm leaving. Because he he kept it, he said he never kept it a secret, but he did, <laughs> you know. And uh, I remember a friend coming up to me in the street and telling me, "Well, Graham's got get got a band in in America." And I thought, "Oh dear, he's never told me about that." So it was a long time ago, but when it happened, I was a bit distraught. I mean, there were things that came into my mind about, well, if he goes, what am I going to do? You know, because I'd been with him all the time. He was like, he was like Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, you know, all that sort of thing. And it was John and John and, and Paul, and you know, Simon and Garfunkel, the Every Brothers, and and all of a sudden to be, it was like a twin. They didn't look. We didn't look. But it was like a twin, a gone. And so I thought, well, um, I've got a family. I've got I've got a kid. I've got to look after them. Um, uh, I'd, got, I'd got a mortgage. <laughs> Even pop stars had mortgages in those days, you know, in the 70s. 
And um, I thought, right, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to get someone just like Graham or try and find someone just like Graham. And Terry Sylvester came along. And, and we, we bonded straight away because he was actually, he, he was fantastic. He took, he took the part of Graham in his stride without being Graham, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He was his own man with his own harmonies. And I think he actually, it turned the sound into a different, a different sound, but not, not really in the way that it became indistinguishable. You know what I mean? It was, it created a new sound, but it was a holy sound. So it was like Graham had been gone now. Here he is. So we put a record out and it, sorry, Suzanne's pop song got to number two. Oh, it's all right. A little while longer, we could have probably, could have, dead, could have been shot down. Crazy Sam McGee. That was a hit. Oh, oh, it's not too bad. And then we, we recorded He Ain't Heavy Is My Brother. And that was boom. Yeah, wasn't it ever? I, I forgot all about Graham. <laughs> I just, what was the, what was the point? You know, there was no point. So I'd, I'd reached the same level, you see, as that he was writing. I'd reached the same level that he was writing where the pop culture had, it, it sort of take, took us on and said, that's great. And then Long Paul Woman came along, you know, and then the air that I breathe. And it did, you know, and so, you know, when, when I, I felt diminished by him not being there, um, I never felt the diminishing feeling anymore after that. It's quite fun, uh, funny and ironic in a way that you had your biggest American success after he left the band to go to America. Yeah, well, it's funnily enough, I had the biggest success with the Hollies with not being in the group with Longpool Woman. Yes. <laughs> it was a pop song, you know, and I know it's rock and roll. Uh, Roger Cook and I, you know, we, we sat down one day and said, let's try a song, make it into a bit of rock and roll. He had an idea, he had this idea. Uh, about the situation between a man and a woman. And I, I got my guitar down there. So I, I chugged along and we got into the lyric on it within half an hour and about half a bottle of brandy gone. We, we, it was rock and roll. Took it to, took it to the uh, the studio. And this Obviously, this is before I left. Took it to the studio. We were doing an album called Distant Light. And uh, I said, I've got this song. And I played it. Tony says, that's great. That'll be going on the album. He said, let's do it now. Okay, you play guitar because you know it. Bobby and Bobby on the drums, Bernie on the bass, and we, we just laid a basic track down. And Tony put a, a, another a chugging thing on the top of it. And I thought, right, well, we'll do the uh, do the vocals now. So uh, did um, did two two takes. Uh, picked the first one. Um, the engineer put some slap echo on it. We went into the engineering room and, and listened to it and, and everybody looked at each other and said, right, that's great, go on the album. So it went on the album, well, it went on the album and the album came out uh, and what had happened, I approached the boys because I, I was doing stuff like this. I was doing stuff like local women things. I said, I want to make a, a solo album. Would you mind if I just took a couple of months off to do that? And they said, well, no, if you do that, you'd have to leave. And I thought, well, that's a bit strange. I wouldn't want to make a solo album. And they said, no, because if you leave to do that, you won't come back. Uh. Well, you know, well, at that particular time, they said, well, you've got to go. So I, I suppose that they fired me. 
Anyway, so anyway, I went out and I, I had a three-year holiday uh, writing the sort of stuff that I wanted to do. I'd, I'd rock and roll. Uh, got some really good uh, songs out of it. and sent about three three good albums. Uh, and then Tony said, will you come back? Now, before that happened, they went to America to actually promote One Cool Woman. And they had a Swedish singer called Michael Whitford's. Yep. And I thought, well, how are they going to do that? So I approached, I did actually approach the management and says, well, if you're going to go over, I might as well come over and promote it with you. And they said, well, no, we're going to do it ourselves. That was one of the bad things that happened to me at that. You know, the little things like that come along that you have to climb above. And um, I said, oh, right, so you don't want me. So they went over there and they did. They, 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 but I mean, the break, I got number two and he's still playing to this day. And, and for something that was written in half an hour, recorded in about three quarters of an hour, we didn't even have Ron Richards on it because he was ill. So it was completely different to whatever the Hollies had ever, ever done before. Yep. No harmonies, no nothing. Me playing guitar, even the intro. It was, it was crazy. But anyway, I mean, I, I, they should have taken me over there because I think the band would have been a lot bigger yep. with me on the front doing it in America. They'd just gone wild. But it didn't happen. That's the, you know, that's, that's the game. It is a great song. It is a fabulous song. Mm. It is, yeah. I still play it today. Oh, and <laughs> and I love playing it on the radio because it is, and it is it is a shut the disc jockey song up too because you don't ever talk over the front of it. You let the front of it go and never ever ever speak over the top of it. No, no, it's got an intro. Yeah, you know, it's like like with uh, with Ian Heavy, it's the harmonica with the, the, the air that I breathe. It's Tony's. I mean, everybody knows what it is. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we've, we've done some good, the Hollies have really done some good things. Oh, I the, think, I think the odd good song sort of snuck through. I know, <laughs> I know. I mean, I think we, you know, we deserve to be uh, a bit bigger than we were, really. I think, you know, we should have been acclaimed in the, in the top three rather than in the top five, you know. Oh, yeah. I, well, I just, I'll be honest, I got you second of the Beatles. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I, one, one question I want to ask, it's a songwriter's question. What song, and forget the money angle of it, what song would you like to have written that you hear and you yeah. go, God, I wish I'd written that song? He and Heavy. Ah, uh, okay. It's He and Heavy because um, after years doing it, I mean, it was like maybe six months after we recorded it, it was a, it was a hit, and then I started listening to it. In, in a way that I'd never, I hadn't listened to it before. Yeah. Even though when I sang it, I, I put the emotion into it um, because it, it was ta- it was talking to me in some way. You know, I, I was saying this is what you have to do for this song for it to be a hit. And I think because I think I got it right with the emotion that I put I put into it. But when I started listening to it again, I thought this this is a powerful song. This, this this says a lot more than just me singing it or the Holy's doing it. This is a very, very powerful song that everybody can listen to and be touched by it, you know, because it is a message. You know, it's a, it's, it's a message that a lot, of, a lot of prophets have said, you know, in, in their day, you know, love thy God and love thy neighbour and everything will be all fine, you know. Look after your neighbour and everything will be fine. So, yeah, I would have loved to have written that, 
but those two guys, Bobby Scott and Bobby Russell, got there before me. Yeah. So yeah, no, brilliant song. No, it is a great song. It's a great song. But yep. I mean, there's a, a Holly song for every occasion, no matter what you what you want to do in terms of and, and written by you and Graham and, and Tony for a lot of it and uh, other people for and you and you some of the songwriters you discovered. I mean, Graham Gilman's obviously one of um, them. What a what a great yeah, songwriter. He's, he's still collecting up for stuff. Yeah. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> um, I spoke to him a couple of weeks I, I, back. It was a good song, good song for his time. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Well, congratulations on this uh, on this new album. Uh, it's fabulous to hear you and Graham working together, but it's it, it's it's fabulous to hear you singing and and enjoying yourself and uh, and giving us some great songs. Well, you know, if we hadn't got it together now, we we, we you know it's cutting it a bit short. <laughs> we, we, we had to do it just to get it out of the way, you know. That's a bucket list thing. Get that out of the way. We've done that now. Now we can. Now we. Now I can actually write songs without having to think about Graham. So there's a lot more within me that you know is is not with Graham in mind. Yeah. The songs were Graham, Graham in mind with the with with the notes that with the, were within the songs, apart from the lyrics. You know, and and I I think I pulled that off. Yep, I think you did too. Yeah, but without Graham, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you yes. so much uh, for having a chat. It's been uh, an absolute delight, Alan. Oh, my pleasure, Kevin. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. When the next album comes out, we will. Okay, I'll just start it now. <laughs> Good on you. Thank you, Alan. Take care and look after yourself. Okay. Bye.
So there's Alan Clark from the Hollies, lovely man, and it was it was terrific to catch up. I'm a massive Hollies fan. I think they're one of the great bands that came out of that English era. So good to catch up with him. Now, Brian, we're going to finish. Yeah, good you know, on you, Clarko. Good on you, Clarky buddy. You know how we've been playing new music by people uh, at the end of the show, yeah. and, and we got we got yes. more of that coming up. I promise you that we yes. will continue to do that and play songs by people. We've got Timmy Hinwood is coming up very soon to have a chat about good. his he's, stuff. He's brilliant, but. Also, mm. want to yes. filter in here every now and again yes. some of the stuff that you do because uh, one of the one of the things about this program it's called the life of Brian, but we don't actually play a lot of your music, and a lot of <laughs> a lot of people have asked me about that. So, uh, and I said, well, well because me, me, mainly. <laughs> but, um, okay, yes. a lot of people whose names are Mannix have asked me about uh, that, <laughs> but you've got a whole stack of stuff that that you've done over the the last few years that you haven't that no one's heard. There's a lot of songs that have just got left behind. We've got a little folio, and we're going to play them every now and again. And now the one I've picked yeah. is I want you to, and I want you to tell us the story behind the song, and, and when you did it. Well, I guess why we haven't heard it. The one I picked is called "No Tomorrow." Oh, okay. Good little um, pop song, I reckon. Yeah, it's a beauty with a nice little, um, nice little guitar edge in it too. Okay, so we had this band called the Atomic Dining Club, which I later renamed Filthy Frothy Green Discharge. Anyway, we had a record deal with EMI, which every mistake imaginable, the album never got it got released. But anyway, but there was the three of us and we wrote the song together, so there was no jealousy of like, oh, he's got three songs, I've only got two, and all that sort of shit. So we beat all that. And this song was... Well, we didn't have a song, so we just started recording and put down a drum beat and then found some sort of bass line. We said, oh, yeah, it just sounds too normal, so we just chucked it down an octave or two, I think, and then we needed a guitar riff over the top and I think it sounds a little bit like um, Staying Alive, actually, the guitar riff, but it's not. And then wrote the song, didn't, couldn't get a chorus, they didn't have a chorus at all. So then I went home with the thing and I came up with this oh, 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 oh thing, which I thought was a bit Led Zeppelin like Jamaica. Oh, oh, eh, oh, you know, like oh, uh, 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 oh, that sort of thing. Yeah. Anyway, it still needed a punchline. And so there's a certain Rocky movie where <laughs> Rocky's there and he's going, and Apollo Creed's talking to him and he goes, Come on, Rock. You got to do better, Rock. You got to do better. Do do better tomorrow. And then Apollo Creed says, there is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow, Rock. (laughs) And I thought, oh, yeah, that's not bad. There is no tomorrow. So that's the name of the song, There Is No Tomorrow. It's actually Apollo Creed saying, and I'll probably get sued for this. I'll probably make 20 cents. No, you can take. You can't can't, um, uh, copyright words. Well, the the chorus is is me going, oh, 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 and Apollo Creed going, there is no tomorrow. But... The other thing to look out for, there's two other things to look out for in the middle. of um, At the start of the song you hear, this could be the greatest night of our lives and you're going to let it be the worst, which is John Belushi from Animal House. If you listen carefully, you hear that. Yeah. And the middle part, we were so stoned and we needed it to do something different. And I had this belief and I still have this belief, you can pick any three notes. So I said to the guys, pick a note. Now pick one that doesn't work with that note to the other guy. Then I picked one that clashed as well, and it was awful. 
So we just repeated it, and it sounds like something that's really fucking cool. <laughs> but it's, it's the three worst notes we can think of. It's if you repeat any three shit notes, it becomes a hook. <laughs> so that's what we did. And so that's pretty much the story of No Tomorrow. Now, and, can you can um, you say who the other musos were that were involved in it or not? Yeah, it was my very good friend Steve Harrison who unfortunately passed away. He was uh, the second bass player in the X-Men and was a hell of an influence on me, taught me pretty much everything I know about the studio and he we co-wrote a lot of songs together and, you know, I'd think I'd finish a song and he'd go, oh, I think it needs a bridge. And i go, no, it doesn't need a bridge. And <laughs> write some bridge. i go, fuck, it's the best part of the freaking song, you asshole. <laughs> and he's also the guy because everybody wants to work. Was When I was working on it, it was called Everybody Wants to Dance. And he said to me, should call it work. And I said, what? And everybody wants to work. So oh, now we're talking, yeah. Oh, um, and, and the other guy was uh, Ross McLennan, who's still with us, a great guitarist and uh, a great sequencer and, you know, great engineer and did, did all that stuff. Okay. Uh, uh, all right. Yeah. Well, let's have a listen to it. And that's, uh, that's this episode of uh, Life of Brian. We'll finish with No Tomorrow. Uh, thank all you, right. Brian. And uh, thank you to our good friend Jeff Finnick and Alan Clark. And coming soon, uh, Toddy Goldsmith. Mike Rudd, Jesse Colin Young. We've got lots coming up, so some good stuff on the way. But uh, here, ladies and gentlemen. Jerry is, Springer. What, what is this? Frothy Green Discharge. No, well, it's the Atomic Dining Club. I repackaged it for when we did the 2006. It's a whole other episode, Kev. It's the Atomic <laughs> Dining Club. <laughs> let's just play it. <laughs> yeah, let's. See you, Brian. See you, mate. Thanks.
16 prescriptions and it's still not right. Where are we going? 